Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Let me open us now with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. Uh, for this opportunity that we have, Lord, to open your word. Uh, Lord, this, this sacred hour of the, the week where we set aside to gather together and, Lord, to hear from you. And, God, we long to, uh, Lord, commune with you. Lord, as the psalmist said, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Father, we long to behold you and your power and your glory this morning. And Father, I pray that you would bless and refresh your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, tonight, millions of people across our country and all around the world will tune in to watch two teams of men in pristine physical condition, suit up in colorful uniforms, to go out on a playing field to smash into one another in an attempt to carry a little leather oblong ball across a goal line more times than the other team carries that same little leather oblong ball across the other goal line. These men have dedicated their lives to the pursuit of this game And every week they risk broken bones, torn muscles, and traumatic brain injury for the sake of a greater reward. For some of them, it's multi-million dollar paychecks. But in this Sunday's game in particular, there's an even greater reward at stake, isn't there? I'm talking about the ultimate reward that every little boy dreams about from his days of playing Pop Warner football on up on the, or on the playground at school, the championship trophy, right? Everybody wants to be crowned the best, to be champions of the world, to hoist that trophy over your head as the confetti's coming down, and to be asked, what are you going to do next? And to say, I'm going to take my family to Disney World, right? That's the, I mean, that's the ultimate dream of every little boy. I think it illustrates that people will do incredible things for the sake of a reward, won't they? We're we're in the midst of a sermon series where we're examining the plurality and priority of biblical motivations for obeying God. And we've discussed the fact that motives matter to God, even though they're tricky things. And we've discussed the greatest of all biblical motives being love. Last week, we even discussed the importance of another biblical motivation, the the fear of the Lord. This morning, I want to discuss another motivation with you. I want to discuss with you the treasures of your heart. I want to discuss with you being motivated by reward. What role should reward play in your Christian life? I really just have three simple things I want to say about that this morning. First, I want to say that we must be motivated by reward. 
You know, I've been asked many times as a pastor, Pastor, is it okay for me to be motivated by reward in my Christian life? I don't know if you've ever asked that question before, or even if it wasn't to a pastor or to a friend, if it was even just to yourself. Is this okay for me to be motivated by by a sense of reward? I mean, um, I I think I get where that that question is coming from. Uh, There's a way in which being motivated by a reward can become very selfish. It, It can seem almost contrary to the grace that we preach and that we believe in. But I want to tell you this morning that that rightly understood God's reward is not wrong. In fact, we must be motivated by it. Not only is it okay to be motivated by God's rewards, it's a must. It's a must in order for our faith to flourish in the way that God intends. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's a must. Now, let me be careful to indicate that in the context here of Hebrews chapter 11, that the reward that is being spoken of here is not earthly reward, right? But a heavenly reward. In fact, that's really the whole point of of Hebrews chapter 11. If you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, I kind of affectionately refer to it as the Hall of Faith chapter. You know, it's a long list of faithful men and women who uh, walked through this world by faith. And uh, one of the big points of that chapter is to demonstrate that this long line of faithful followers demonstrated their faith, especially when God didn't give them what, what he had promised them right away. It was a delayed hope. And almost across the board, starting, you know, we, we looked at this recently with, with men like Enoch and Abraham and on down through the line, Moses, all through that chapter. They didn't fully receive what God had promised, but it was a delayed hope and, and that's for a good reason, because faith isn't demonstrated most clearly when you get what you want right away. Faith is most clearly demonstrated when God tells you something's going to happen, and you have to wait for it. You have to demonstrate faith in it. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13 says this. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them from from afar and greeted them and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So if I could just put that in simple terms that relate to our relates to our study on motivations this morning, this means that we are all looking forward to what's still to come. Even though we've received many of the, the blessings of God already, we are all looking forward to what is still yet to come. We are looking forward to the final rewards that God has to offer us in faith. Now, a lot of preachers want to motivate their congregations with the idea that if you put your faith in God, he will reward that faith right now, right, with success and money and possessions and pleasures. And and don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there's no reward for following God now. 
There's no other life I would rather be living than, than following the Lord Jesus Christ, even though it's difficult, even though there's trials and tribulations. It is an abundant life because I'm in a relationship with Him. But that doesn't mean that God has promised me success and money and possessions and pleasures in this life because He hasn't. You can attract a big crowd with that kind of message, but that kind of message and that kind of ministry is a lie. So beware. The Apostle Paul taught that godliness with contentment is great gain. Right? He always pointed people to the great gain of simply gaining Christ now and forevermore. So looking to Christ in, in this way is, and, and by that I mean by looking to Christ for reward, is integral to what it means to live by faith. We, we, not only is it okay for us to do that, but we must do it. And also, I think that there's one other reason why we must be motivated by God's rewards, and that is simply because your heart is wired to treasure what you find rewarding. Let me say that again. Your heart is wired to treasure what you find rewarding. We are all motivated by that which we find most rewarding. We are all treasure seekers at heart, aren't we? Whether that be short-term pleasure or disciplined lifetime achievement over the long haul, we are all consciously or unconsciously pursuing that which we perceive to be the most rewarding thing to get out of this life. We're all doing it. And that's why Jesus said so wisely in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice he didn't question if your heart was going to treasure something. He said where your treasure is. He knew you were going to treasure something. He questioned what that treasure was going to be. Was it going to be God or was it going to be money? He questioned where that treasure would lie. Would it be in heaven or would it be on earth? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that's why I say we must treasure the reward that God promises or we will treasure something else, something less. Secondly, God's rewards are all of grace. I must remind you this morning that rewards from God are gracious from first to last. You should know deep down that you don't deserve any reward from God. You don't. In fact, as a sinner, the only reward that you deserve is the just reward for your sins. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Death is the reward that, or the wage that you rightly deserve. And if God was being completely fair, Jesus would have remained safely unharmed. He would have never gone to the cross. And instead, you would have suffered that just reward for your sins. But we learn through the gospel of a great exchange of rewards that takes place. By faith in him, Jesus and I exchange our rewards. Jesus gets my reward of punishment and I get his imperishable and priceless reward 
of heaven. What a, what a, what a bum deal for Jesus, right? I mean, he gets all that punishment. He gets my just reward, and I get his righteous, imperishable, priceless reward. And yet Jesus knew what was on the other side of bearing our just reward, wasn't it? It was an even greater reward for him. And that's why he fixed his eyes upon that reward. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You say, okay, I, I get it that I don't earn my, my reward of salvation. Uh, heaven is a reward that only can ever be received by grace. Pastor Stan, I know this, you say this every Sunday. I'm reminding you of it, but also, what about above and beyond salvation? What about any re- reward or commendation that you would hope to receive from God for the good works that you do as a Christian? Does the Bible speak of us being rewarded for those things? Does, do you as a Christian look forward to not only hearing God say, hey, welcome into heaven, but not only welcome, but also what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Any commendation we would receive from God, that, that longing that we have to hear God say to us, well done, any reward that he may bestow upon us because of those things still is all of grace. I think at the, at the end when we stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in his glory and we get images of that in the book of Revelation and we see those elders that had crowns on their heads in the heavenly throne room, what do they do? They take those crowns off their heads and they cast them before the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Only he is worthy, and any commendation that he gives us is really a, a, it redounds to his glory and to his grace in our lives. Um, 1 Corinthians 15.10, I like how the Apostle Paul, even though he's being forced to defend his ministry to the Corinthians, and he's in a sense boasting of the things that he's done as a Christian, He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Yet it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. And he gives all the glory to God. Thirdly, the rewarder is the reward. You know, every once in a while you meet someone who claims that they don't want to go to heaven. That's probably because they don't really believe that there is a heaven. Most everyone that I've ever met wants to go to heaven someday. Maybe not today, but they want to go someday. And most people believe that they will, in fact, go there. And yet, I have found that if you press a little further into that belief of heaven you will often discover that even though there may be a desire to go to heaven someday, there is often little to no desire to know personally the one who is the Lord of heaven. Not interested. You see, it's, 
it's not it's not Christ. It's just heaven they want. But by contrast, at the heart of biblical Christianity is the desire to know Christ at any cost. Knowing Him and being known by Him is everything. Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He counted everything as a loss compared to that. The reward of heaven is not going to be boring. I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. If you think that heaven's going to be like an unending church service where someone like me stands up behind a, a podium and drones on and on and on for eternity, singing maybe songs you don't care for or whatever, no, you're, you're, you are sorely mistaken. Heaven's citizens will do more than assemble for corporate worship. And it's a wonderful thing. There's a book by, written by Andy Al, Randy Alcorn that he really dives into that, you know, sort of thinking through what, what will heaven be like. I w- if you've never read that book and if you have an interest in heaven, I would commend it to you. But with all that said, I, I, you know, I, I, as Christians, as citizens of heaven, when we finally get there, we will do more than gather for corporate worship. But make no mistake the highlight of heaven is going to be beholding and worshiping Him. It's a spiritual secret, I think, to understand that the rewarder is the reward. When you gain Him, you gain all things. I love the way saints throughout and by saints, I mean people who have been set apart by God, those who have believed in, the, in, in God and trusted in Him for their salvation. I love the way people who have trusted in God throughout the ages in the Bible have expressed this great hope of seeing God with their own eyes. Probably one of the oldest in the Scriptures is, comes from the book of Job. You know Job, the man who lost it all. He lost his children. He lost his possessions. He lost his health. He's being criticized by his closest friends and he expresses this hope in Job 19. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. This sounds like you ripped it out of the New Testament. And at the last, he will stand on the earth and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold him and not another. What a hope. Another great foretaste of seeing God face to face, I think, is expressed by none other than Moses. You know, Moses saw the Lord in the burning bush and different things like that. He, when he was up on, on uh, the mountain with the Lord, he expressed to him a prayer. He said, Lord, please show me your glory. Exodus chapter 33. And the Lord agreed to that, but he said, you can't handle it. Right? He hit him in the cleft of the rock and covered him with his hand as he passed by and let Moses see his backside as he passed by. Just get a, just a little glimpse. But I think that request that Moses asked, Lord, please show me your glory. That's the heart cry of every, anyone who's truly been born again. Lord, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. I want to behold you in the sanctuary in the sanctuary of heaven with my own eyes. 
1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. The people sitting around you in the pew might look at them and say, Really, will that, will, will they stand in heaven before the King of kings and the Lord of lords? If you could see the person sitting next to you who is walking by faith in their glorified bodies one day, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them right now just because of the glory, right? We are not yet what we will one day be, John says. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In order to see him face to face, we need to be changed. And that is our great hope. Revelation 22, 3 3 and 4 captures that yet future moment when we will do just that. John, in his vision of the new heavens and the new earth, he says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Brothers and sisters, take God out of heaven. And what do you have left but a longing for a Christless eternity? And what is the definition of hell but a Christless eternity? When you take God out of heaven, you are left with only selfish desire. Selfish desire for the continual fulfillment of every whim and pleasure. But believe me, a heaven without God turns into the darkest of hells. No one and no thing can take his place. What makes heaven a reward? What makes heaven everything else? What makes heaven a sweet place of reunion, a sweet place of joy and peace and happiness and contentment and fulfillment is the fact that he is there. He is not only the reward giver, he is the reward The enjoyment of heaven hinges upon knowing and loving the Lord of heaven. And I want to know, do you know him? Do you love him? Or are you longing for a heaven without Christ? It's a vain hope. This is why I continue to maintain as we discuss biblical motivations for obeying God that that the love of God is the greatest of all the biblical motivations Because you cannot love the reward more than you love the reward giver. What if I loved my what my wife could do for me more than I loved my wife? People treat God that way all the time. Right? They long for his reward, but they don't long for him. In closing, let me just say that sometimes people worry that they might become so heavenly minded that they become that they are no earthly good. Have you heard that saying before? It's not original with me that you can become so heavenly minded that you become no earthly good. To the contrary, I I say that it is through keeping a clear-eyed view of your reward in heaven that you become the most earthly good. you can and should be motivated by the great hope of your reward in Christ. 1 Peter 1.13 says, that's one of my favorite, most favorite verses in the Bible, 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Christ, the trials and tribulations that you are now experiencing are the worst that it's ever going to be for you in Christ. Right? You say, this, man, it feels like I'm going through hell right now. Well, it's not. And you know what? In, in Christ, you know that one day this trial, this tribulation is going to end, and there is a promise of a great reward at the end. Encourage yourself with that. Use that. There is a shore where you will eventually arrive sooner or later, some of us sooner than others. I was shocked to get home from uh, church last Sunday to check the news and see that basketball great that I watched up wa- uh, grew up watching for 20 years, Kobe Bryant, passed away suddenly in a helicopter crash like that. None of us knows when that day will come. You're not guaranteed the rest of this hour or the rest of this day or the rest of this month. Now, are you prepared? I was listening to an evangelist on uh, YouTube yesterday. I think his name was Ray Comfort. He was ta- challenging some people. Are you prepared for heaven or for death? He said, it's like, you know, it's like we've all jumped out of an air, airplane 30,000 feet and we're rushing towards the ground. Death is coming, right? Some of us are, are, are flapping our arms trying to do our best to slow ourselves down before we hit that sudden stop. But Christ, faith in Christ is like a parachute. that you can put on and be prepared for that moment. And not only be prepared for it, but when you land to be in a place of great reward, not a place of great death. What a, what a promise. What a hope. There's a shore that you will eventually arrive at sooner or later where you shall see your Savior face to face and I, I can tell you that hoping and longing for that day now makes all the difference in the journey. There is a joy in the journey when you trust in Christ. Randy Alcorn often tells a story about the difference that the hope of heaven makes by telling of a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick. In 1952, Florence decides She's going to swim from an island off the coast of Los Angeles to the main, mainland shore. I hope she was in a, one of those shark cages, you know. <laughs> she swam over 20 miles from this little island off the coast, just through open ocean, to, to make it to the shore of California. Alcorn relates the events of her epic swim as they unfolded. He says the, the, wa- the weather was foggy and chilly that day. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, in a boat alongside, told her she was close and that she could make it. Finally, just physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. 
wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than half a mile away. And at the news conference the next day, she said this, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Are you in the fog this morning, Christian? Have you lost sight of that glorious heavenly shore? Let me encourage you to turn your eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious glory and grace. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says this, and I close with this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray.